Welcome to the Naked Ambition Podcast, where we speak with the people who are making an impact in tech, innovation, and leadership all around the world. I'm your host, Fiona Triarca. So before we start this week's show, we also have a little announcement to make. If you are an enterprise innovator or a current or emerging leader who's hungry for more ways to bring creativity to your work or even keen to build a new product or service with your team, we have just launched the Business Design Accelerator. It is a completely self-paced program covering everything from how to understand your customers better to coming up with new ideas for them and building and testing a product prototype before release. There's also lessons in there on how to influence for innovation, which is in short, how to get your ideals approved internally. If you're keen on this and you like the sound of it, just use the code NAKED at the checkout on our website at naked-ambition.com.au and get the first release for 30% off. That's NAKED at the checkout. Okay, on with the show. So on this week's episode, we chat with Fred Etiombre, who is an executive advisor on strategy and innovation at Strategizer. If you haven't heard of them, Strategizer are the innovation powerhouse behind very famous books, Business Model Generation, or you might know that as the Business Model Canvas. They also wrote Value Proposition Design and even more recently, Testing Business Ideas. The newest book is The Invincible Company. Uh, Fred is one of the co-authors of this book alongside the Strategizer team. It is a guide to making innovation more manageable and really critically a book that is written from the perspective of four rather executives in organisations, which is very rare in this area. In this super practical and insightful episode, Fred shares how the team have built a very unique model for that ever-present challenge around how large organisations can manage their existing businesses well, whilst also exploring new opportunities. That is the uh, never-ending challenge, certainly, where we are in as well. So if you're listening to this on audio, I'd recommend checking out the video on our YouTube channel as well, because you don't want to miss some of the killer models that Fred shares. There is so much to learn in this episode. Uh, If you're in this space, I can pretty much guarantee it will blow your mind. We hope you enjoy. Okay, and we are live. Hello and welcome everyone to the Naked Ambition podcast where we speak with people all over the world who are making an impact in leadership, innovation and design. So hello to everyone out there who is joining us live today. We're so grateful that you have jumped on Uh, and I'm super excited to introduce our guest today, Fred Ontombler. He is, uh, I think, someone who, more than probably anyone we've actually had on the show, who really epitomises someone who's making an impact in all three of those areas of leadership, design and innovation. He is the co-author of The Invincible Company, which has just been released a few months ago. It's a guide to making innovation more accessible for senior leaders in organisations and executives and really helping them build resilience, making it really possible. Fred as well with Strategizer is an executive advisor on strategy and innovation and he's been working inside large organisations for around 20 years. So he really knows his stuff. From a personal perspective, uh, I met Fred a couple of years ago uh, when he the, you were drafting this book about 18 months ago and I've just been up absolutely obsessed with it since it was released. So 
Fred, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for the introduction, Fiona. Really happy to be here. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, let's just jump straight in. Fred, tell us all about the book. How did it come about? Who is it for? Give us the real, the download. Yeah, so I'll just share my, my screen here to answer that question because it's hard to talk about um, this book uh, without talking about the previous books in, in the Strategizer series. So, uh, you know, it all started in 2009 with this book that, you know, most uh, that I know you know, and uh, maybe other people listening today know, uh, called Business Model Generation with this tool called the Business Model Canvas. Uh, that is quite um, widespread now used by startups, from startups to very large organizations to map your existing business or also in innovation to map your new business idea. And then it was followed up um, a few years later, 2014, by this other book called Value Proposition Design and this other tool called the Value Proposition Canvas because at the time, what Alex uh, Osterwalder, um, the uh, author of Business Model Generation with Yves Pinier and founder of Strategizer, what he realized is that people were putting a lot of sticky notes in the value proposition box. They wanted to go deeper in defining uh, the value proposition. And then we created this other tool to help them uh, do that job. So uh, Value Proposition Canvas uh, helps you understand you know, your customer, uh, their job spends and gains and map uh, your product and service um, to fit those uh, customer job spends and gains. And then what we, you know, five years, five years later, again, we released another book called Testing Business Ideas because we had realized that um, with, the, with the, all the design thinking movements and um, the impact of uh, uh, trainers and practitioners over the world, even our large clients were getting more and more comfortable uh, prototyping, you know, building a quick prototype at the beginning of the innovation process. But what everyone was still struggling with was testing. You know, people were afraid to test their idea, afraid to get out of the building. So um, Alex and the team, they, uh, and David Bland, the, the main author of Testing Business Ideas, they, they worked on this book to do two things. First clarify the testing process and how it fits with the design process. So this, so this design and test double loop that you see here on the screen, mm -hmm. and then provide people with a library of experiments. So they, they could do more than just, you know, customer interview. That's what everyone does at the beginning, but there's, there's so many more experiments you can do to test your ideas. So they, they put together a, a quite an extensive library with 44 experiments. But the common thread here is that a lot of those books and tools, they are for practitioners, they are for, for the doers. And, and the, the, what we were getting from the field is that those innovation teams, especially within large organizations, they were very often uh, hitting a glass ceiling. And that was you know, the barriers and the obstacles they, they meet when, when they have to get support from leaders or when they you know very successful and they, they, they need to get approval from the board. And usually that's where things stopped. And so, um, as you said, we worked on this other book released this year, The Invincible Company. And this book, to answer your question, is more for leaders. So the idea was to provide leaders 
a guide so that they can manage innovation, so that we could make innovation, especially in large organizations, easier to manage for leaders. Mm. Um, it's no longer a black box. You know, they're not afraid of touching this strange thing that is innovation. They have the guide, the processes, the tools they need in order to manage that efficiently. And the main two tools that we introduced with this, um, this book are the portfolio map that we've, we'll talk a little bit maybe about the portfolio map. And, um, and the other one is the culture map. And with those two tools, you can uh, build resilience in your organization and you can create you know, this thriving innovation culture. So that's that's why we we started. Uh, that's why we worked on on this book to, uh, mm -hmm. you know, solve that problem experienced by innovation teams. But behind that problem from innovation team, there was a problem from leaders. To, mm -hmm. So to solve this problem from leaders as well, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I love to see that evolution of all of those books as well. And I know a lot of people out there, especially people who are watching. Uh, the visual of this so even anyone who's who's maybe picking up this podcast later on and gets the audio version I recommend jumping into the YouTube as well so you can actually see some of what Fred is talking to there I know you know my business model generation is absolutely synonymous with you know from both in in the entrepreneurial or the startup world as well as corporate innovation so it's you know it's often one of those building blocks and where people start with you know, how, how am I going to challenge what is, has gone before? How do we challenge norms? So it's really cool to see some of that evolution there. Um, and one of the things that really struck me actually digging into the book um, that felt, you know, I think there's a few kind of moments in your life where you have like a real, wow, you know, I'm seeing a model that really represents something that you had always pictured almost intuitively. I remember it happening when I first saw the double diamond about seven years ago and I had a big, oh my God, where have you been all my life through, you know, creative and even banking and industries where we could have done with some of that sort of divergent and convergent. Um, and then seeing this, this sort of explore and exploit portfolio. So the way that you have presented that, and maybe we can share the visual in a moment, but talk to me a little bit about, you know, how that as a concept came up with you as a team because I know you Fred specifically at Strategizer your sweet spot is really the the business model patterns as well isn't yep. it and exploring some of those sorts of patterns so do you want to talk to us about maybe where some of these pieces fit and how they help companies yeah so I mean the let, let's start with the first part of, of your question so mm -hmm. the and I'll share the the visual that you're re referring to yeah um, so that people can see as well. So well, again, we said, okay, let's write this book, this book so that we can help build resilience. And you know, it took us a couple of years to write the book. We did, we did a lot of research. And, and one pattern that we saw uh, or one common characteristics from those companies that you know, we call invincible companies. I mean, no company is invincible. That's just a fancy title. But the companies that build resilience, meaning that they are able to withstand shocks or withstand disruption of one of their businesses and continue to thrive, those companies are not only working on their existing business. They're not only working on you know, growing and improving their existing business. That's what we, that's what we call the exploit, the exploit world and the exploit portfolio. They're also in parallel exploring new ideas. So new product, new services, completely new business models. 
they're constantly searching for those um, new ideas, new businesses that, you know, new ideas that could become the businesses of tomorrow for them. Mm. And, and that, um, that led to the creation of the, of the tool where we say, okay, let's make it explicit. If they're doing those two things and those two things are different, then let's show that the two portfolios are different. They share some characteristics like the, the axis have similar characteristics like uh, uh, on the exploit portfolio, you have the return on the uh, vertical axis, you know, and, and usually companies organize that by profit or by revenues, etc. Mm. And on, on the horizontal axis, you have the risk, you know, we call it the death or disruption risk. So, um, and if you, if you look at the explore portfolio, then you have similar logic. You have a return on the, on the vertical axis, but it's not a real return. It's a potential return. It's an expected mm -hmm. return. And then in terms of risk, it's not the actual risk of disruption or death of your business. It's the innovation risk. So how much risk is there in your new idea? How much have you de-risked this idea so far? Mm -hmm. So the logic is the same, but we separated the two to make it explicit that you have to manage those two things separately. Mm -hmm. um, and now to come to the, to the practical uh, uh, answer to your question, because I think that's, that's also quite um, funny and quite telling. How, did, how was this tool created? Mm -hmm. um, usually, you know, it was created in the way we created most of the uh, new tools in the in the in the book, and I think that's how they they, they work in the past as well. Basically, uh, Eve uh, Pinier and Alex Osterwalder got locked in a hotel in the <laughs> middle of the Swiss mountains for three days, and they just prototyped for three days. And at mm. the end of the three days, they had a model. Then they tested it with uh, with uh, some uh, friendly advisors people they knew then you know once they have a more mature model they test it on twitter on linkedin get some feedback then test it with clients etc etc and after a few iterations you land on something that is robust enough to be to be used with our with our clients and to end up end up in a book mm. thanks for sharing that as well about how that was something we wanted to get to how does this work in practice, you know, coming up with these new models. I think that's something that's quite cool about the strategizer brand and the way that you work as well. Um, it is really living and breathing, you know, a lot of what you talk about. You know, we do need to be testing these and they have to come from somewhere and, you know, test them early and test them, get that peer review happening and then get yeah. the customers as well next. Yeah. So, I mean, talk to us as well. Like, let's stay on this for a little while. We can not necessarily have the model up, but even just, you know, it's balancing. You can see people even thinking, looking at this from executives. It's like, yep, love the model intuitively. It makes sense, but that's hard, isn't it? You know, these yeah. organisations that we're talking about that are really good at maintaining, yeah. um, you know, the, that risky portfolio and keeping some yeah. of that going and then also yeah. making sure that they don't let go of the current business. So there are... You know, some of those, can we dive a little bit um, into some of those other characteristics? Because presumably it's not the same people that should be managing what's going on up in Exploit as it yeah. is in Explore, you know, but equally we don't want people hiding innovation in corners of the organisation yeah. either. Yeah, and, and maybe I'll, um, I'll also share another model that, that we use to, to um, uh, when we, we talk about those kind of topics, um, uh, we, we use this model that I will, that I will let me just, um, mm -hmm. give me one sec. Uh, 
because I think that's that's an, one of the key ideas um, when when we work with people uh, around helping them with their innovation challenges. You know, they come with an innovation challenge, and and as long as they only talk about innovation, it's very hard to help them. So one of the one of the things that we do is we use this very simple model where we talk about the fact that there's not one kind of innovation, there are different types of innovation. And the three main categories we use are efficiency innovation, you know, you're improving processes, you're improving your existing business model, you know, maybe refining your existing value propositions. That's making what you have better or more efficient. And then you have sustaining innovation where you're replacing or extending value proposition, you're creating new channels, you're going into new geographies with what you have, creating this, those additional revenues by doing this kind of, kind of innovation. Mm. And then you have truly transformative innovation where you have new business models, new value proposition, and entirely new growth engine. And then when you dive into some of the questions that you ask, like, how should I, what should my process look like? Where should people be? You know, should they be in a, an innovation lab that is in a different building from from the rest of the organization or should they be embedded into the business units because that's where the work happens yeah. you know you can end up in an argument but actually when you go into you know the, the 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 type of innovation you're after then it becomes a lot clearer i mean if you're after efficiency innovation and your your innovation focus is around delivering cost savings or making better processes or only improving what you have today then of course you're going to work close to where, where close to the business, close to the business units, close to the resources, etc. Yeah. Now let's say you're you're working on something that's very disruptive, very transformative. That's you know sounds scary for the rest of the of the business. Then you better ring fence the the team that works on that on that subject, and then mm -hmm. you know might make sense to isolate that that team from the rest of the organization. So there's not a one-size-fits-all answer. It really depends what type of innovation you, uh, you are after. So mm -hmm. one thing that I've learned is that, you know, I try never to talk about innovation. I try to talk about, you know, which type of innovation are you after, and then we can have a better conversation. Because, mm. I mean, I, you know, it's certainly the case. It must happen a lot in the work you do. We see this as well. It's where people believe that they're heading towards one type of innovation or they wish to or they're talking about this with their team yes. but actually they're doing a completely different one um, and it's this is really interesting because it's that what you're talking about here is even just that alignment and awareness really early yeah the leadership team yeah. around really and that's okay as well you know as you're saying it's yeah. okay if what we're talking about is efficiency because maybe that's what the organization yeah. needs for the next yeah you know, two years or whatever that time horizon is. Yeah. But let's just be clear about what it is because it will yeah. require yeah. a different skill set, won't it, for, you know, different yeah. resources, different yeah. techniques and these sorts of things yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah, one thing, I mean, one example I, I can share, I mean, I, I've worked with, um, I've worked uh, very recently with an energy company in, in mm. Europe and um, they're investing a lot in, in innovation. They create, you know, they've created their lab, innovation lab, a few years ago. They, they want to go towards more transformative innovation. They're setting up a corporate venture capital fund internally. They are, you know, getting partnerships with, uh, with business schools to be exposed to new ideas, etc. They're listening to what other 
um, companies in their industry are doing. So they, they, they get this feeling that they're doing a lot. And then, you know, the, the, there was high expectation from leadership to create new growth with all these activities. And, and what I did with the corporate innovation team is that we looked at, the, at their current innovation portfolio and we looked at where their different innovation projects fit on, on those three types of innovation. And what we realized, and we could make explicit visually um, and share it with the leadership team, is that there was very, very little happening in transformative innovation and even not a lot happening in sustaining innovation. The, 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 the center of gravity of their innovation efforts was around efficiency. So efficiency, you're going to get a little bit of savings, you're going to get a little bit of growth maybe, but not at all aligned with the objectives that they had. So then, you know, you're addressing the elephant in the room and then you can have your corporate innovation team and your leadership team having the, the conversation they need to have. Like, do we need to lower the, the expectations in terms of growth or do we need to uh, find ways to, to reposition our innovation efforts towards more transformative and more sustaining type of innovation? Yeah. And presumably this isn't a conversation that needs to happen once as well. You know, that's something you've got to keep on coming in and revisiting and, you know, why you want your leaders to be educated in how to do this themselves. Is that yeah. part of what you believe? Yeah, I mean, usually, I mean, part of my job when I work with organisations is helping, helping, um, helping my clients or the corporate innovation teams often position the bad news the, the, and and uh, and uh, my experience with positioning the bad news or making something explicit is that yeah it takes a series of conversations and and it takes a, a few iterations to to land where where you want to be so um you know that's that's also um one reason why using visual tools mm. uh using also um a lot of data when we work with organizations we use as much data coming from them as we can like we yeah. survey people we assess we let people self-assess so it's not us coming you know we know it all we're going to tell you mm -hmm. uh, what's wrong with your innovation capability it's you know reflecting on how they self-assessed and maybe giving them some ideas how they could uh, select some high leverage improvement actions to to change and improve their, their innovation capability. Yeah. Can we, this is, I want to go back a little bit actually and dive yeah. to, to, to understand a bit about how, you know, this is sort of the uh, high level strategic work as well that, that you're part of and you do at Strategizer. Tell us firstly how, how you ended up there and then what you sort of specialise in, in the team, the thing yeah. that really kind of lights you up as well. So um, it, when I look back at my, my career, it's really, um, the thread is really about change, you know, how to, how to, how to change. And uh, so even very, from the very start of my career, I've been attracted to large change programs or, you know, um, creating new organizations, creating new companies, um, always more on the on the corporate side than than on the startup side i mean um and that's already answering part of your your question that's what i bring uh to to the team to the mix but if so if i reflect it's always been about large programs of change mm -hmm. and 
Then the second force of my career has been that um, I've had to move several times. So, you know, I started my career in France and then um, my, my wife was working for a, a large global company and you know how careers in, in those global companies are, you know, you do, you do a few years here, then you move to somewhere else and you move to somewhere else, etc. So I had to move, um, I mean, uh, we didn't have to move every two years, but I had some, some pretty big moves. So from, from France to, um, to Switzerland, where we mm. spent seven years, it seemed like not a big ship, not a, not a big move, but it was actually, uh, culturally and it, it was already a big move. And then from Switzerland to Australia in 2012. And every time I moved, I had to reinvent myself. So when I, when I, arrived in Australia in, at the end of 2012, what happens, I, I don't know if, if you're familiar with that, but when, when, when you come to a new country, mm. nobody knows you. So when you're trying to get a job, um, they're taking a risk on you. So the way they mitigate this risk mm. is by uh, having you do the things that you were doing two years ago, because they're like, yeah, he was doing that two years ago, so he, he, he has experience on this thing. Yeah. So you end up doing the things that you don't want to do anymore because, I mean, I like change. The things I was doing two years ago, I no, no longer want to do it. Mm. But that's the kind of jobs that you get. So when I got to Australia, I, I, I went back into programs of change, but that were really efficiency type program of change. So uh, organizations were branding them as business transformations, but mostly it was like, uh, putting up, putting a new ERP system, and uh, you know, with this ERP system, standardized processes, and with standardized processes, let's get rid of uh, of 100 people and call it a victory for the organization. Yeah. So this type of project. Yeah. And after after a few of those, um, one day I just literally woke up and felt like I was in in the Groundhog Day. Like mm. uh, like every day was the same, and uh, I felt completely um, uninspired and I, I, I was like I need to do something different and I started an exploration of um, you know what I wanted to do and a little bit like what you described one I started to um, I went back to consulting different types of change that would be more on either culture or creating something new like innovation mm. and I, I ended up in this conference one day called the um, uh, the Agile Conference in Melbourne, mm. and uh, in in one of the keynotes from a guy called Pete Cohen, who became a friend. Oh, yes. Yeah. And uh, and the, the 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 keynote was like the business model canvas, the lightsaber for the business analyst. And I saw this tool, and it's a little bit what you described uh, with the double diamond. It was a ha moment for me. Like mm. yeah, I'm. I can, I can really use that tool either to help organizations work mm -hmm. on their current business or, you know, to uh, work on, on new business ideas, et cetera. And I started to um, look for work in that, in that area. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, at one of my clients, I had the opportunity to uh, use this toolkit. Uh, at the time, I was not... Uh, I didn't feel I was uh, competent enough to, to train people on how to use it. I had used for my own use, but not for, for clients. So I brought in um, when someone else who became my friend called Greg Bernarda. Greg Bernarda is the um, 
uh, author of um, Value Proposition Design, the second book that we, that we saw the co-author. And Greg, you know, trained all those change agents in this organization and, and, and um, coached them through an innovation process to see how they could change their, their business model. It was, mm. it was in the aged care, in aged care industry. And I was so impressed by how, you know, the energy that he, w- he was creating, uh, you know, the opportunities for cultural change mm. and, and, and the simple, the, I mean, the potential of that tool that I started doing more and more. I did more and more work with Greg. Uh, I ended up um, going to this thing called the Strategizer Bootcamp in 2016. Then I met, um, you know, when, at least I know that in any field, at some point you want to you meet the master. And I felt <laughs> like in 2016, I was meeting Alex Osterwalder and Yves Finier. I was like so impressed. I was meeting the, the masters and I There's had some a kind of Star Wars analogy we need here as well, isn't it? That's that kind of, yeah, got it. Your Jedi master, you got yeah, there. Yeah, exactly, yep. <laughs> exactly. And um, I got along with um, w- with them um, pretty rapidly, and and uh, you know Alex is also someone who's very uh, very direct, and and you know I think one day he told me at the end of this bootcamp, you know, I I don't know you, I've never worked with you. Greg tells me your you you know your stuff, but I have no idea. So, but what I'm willing to do is to you know create an opportunity so we can work together and see mm. if we see if we enjoy that. And that happened a few um, a few months later. We did a work, we did a project together, and then uh, I was receiving so much work from Strategizer that it made sense for me to join uh, join Funtime, and that mm-hmm. that happened uh, a few years ago, yeah, a couple of years ago. Yeah. So I really love that. that. Yeah. World, yeah. And thanks for sharing that because I think it's, you know, there'd be some people who are listening to this at all levels who maybe want to make that jump, especially in a year like we've had, you know, into mm. something that's really meaningful. They have that vision like you do, but then, you know, what are the steps that you actually need to take? And, you know, like all of this, there's no direct path any way through, but it is just that, you know, seeing another door of opportunity, knocking on that door, opening that door and trying to, you know, find, um, I think it's a really nice representation of that evolving journey of your career. If you have an idea, I think, of where you want to go. On the other side as well, I think, Fred, it really represents what what I think is great about and we need to see more of in innovation around people being really open to bringing each other up yeah. and sharing ideas um, and even, you know, at that next step, even maybe seeing some of our organisations that operate within the same industry doing some of that as well, so that kind of coming together and, and sharing ideas, so that's really nice. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the, the work in innovation is, um, is tough enough. Uh, you don't want to be doing that on your own, you know. Uh, we've been thinking a lot about how we can create some communities as well that build resilience for this yeah. uh, uh, those type of professions. I mean, there is um, this uh, this um, idea that many people share in large organizations that uh, you know innovation is carrier suicide, and and uh, <laughs> I mean I don't agree. I think. Uh, 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 we're getting more and more um, awareness that innovation is key. You know, it is a key strategic driver for for large organizations. But still, it's a pretty 
tough job because you feel like you're swimming against the tide all the yeah. time. You're, uh, and if we could create yeah, some communities so that they can, uh, people can get like um, a support group, I think we, yeah. that, that would be really, really, really good. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's a big, yeah, that's, you know, especially for the entrepreneurs, not even people doing it outside exactly as you're talking about there. How can you make life, it's a big passion of ours too, how do we make life easier for entrepreneurs? Because they're often just that one that sees something that they want to change. They don't have those tools yet, yeah. but they know it isn't being done right. You know, you were that person and then you've stepped out. Yeah. I'm really keen to dive into um, some of, and I've seen you at the Strategizer Bootcamp talking to this with a lot of passion you know, the, the impact that sort of business model patterns can yeah. have. Can we talk a little bit about that and, you know, yeah. maybe where that fits in the wider? Because this is an interesting concept. As Fred's bringing some of this up, you know, for anyone out there that's operating, you know, has used the business model canvas before or is curious about this, but, you know, like what are the different ways that, you know, you can genuinely innovate around different aspects of um, you know, of the business model from a financial perspective or whether it's your value prop and these sorts of things and the kind of leaders you can pull. Yeah, and, and um, you know, those, I mean, that's a great question and, and I'm, I'm really happy that you're asking about the business model patterns because I think that's a very underused tools. Mm. And, and when I talked about, you know, testing and some of the things we did uh, to test the book, uh, this was, uh, this probably generated the most awkward moments. Like, uh, uh, when we tested, I tested it there. I mean, that's the part that I spend most time on in the book, those, um, invent patterns and shift patterns. And I tested them extensively and I had many, many times where people had just no clue what I was talking about. Mm -hmm. Like this, this is really not intuitive for people. So first let me frame this around, um, so patterns, we are in the explore portfolio. We want to create a new product, new service, new business model. So we're going to use that process where we are designing, then we are testing our, our assumptions through that design, uh, through that testing loop. And then we're making decisions on our business model. You know, should we change something to the design of the business model? Then we do another design loop, et cetera. Then more testing loops, et cetera, et cetera. And over time you, progress and you go towards, you know, your exploit portfolio. Um, so one way that we can improve the design to increase the expected return of your idea is by using some, what we call those business model uh, patterns. Yeah. Um, and those business model patterns, basically they, we say, okay, it's a repeatable configuration of different business model building blocks to strengthen an organization overall business model. So usually I've lost everyone by then. So, <laughs> I was going to say a lot. <laughs> we want to get a copywriter on that. Yeah. <laughs> so what it means, I mean, business model patterns, they come, they're used everywhere. I mean, they're used yeah. by nature. Yes. Uh, nature uses patterns everywhere. They're also used by other businesses or industries or professions that inspire us a lot, like, like architects. If, if you, you know, if you have large windows, uh, that are north facing in that part of the world, you're gonna get a lot of light in, in, in the room and you're gonna mm. get heat as well. If, um, if you think of different places in the world, like the Swiss Alps where uh, Alex lives, 
uh, and you go you go in the mountains, then you're going to see a, a different things happening from an architectural perspective. You're going to see wider walls and smaller windows. And why is that? Because that's a, a better way to conserve heat. So basically, those patterns, that's what it is. It's configurations that deliver a, a, a better outcome, like wider walls, smaller windows, better for heat conservation, better outcomes in, in, in the Swiss Alps. So in business as well, we can use patterns. There are certain configurations of you know, the building blocks of your business model that lead to better outcomes. And we worked on, on those. And basically, we, in the book, we have uh, created two libraries. One library that we call the invent pattern, and that's that's almost something. Okay, so if you if you're in a startup, you're creating a new a new business from scratch. You can create it uh, from scratch, really. But you also can use a pattern, saying, okay, what if I use this pattern? And then it's a little bit like a a coloring book, except mm. you're not coloring in the line, but you're just creating your business model, building building blocks based on an existing pattern. And of course, it's it's not. It's not to be applied um, uh, without thinking. It's it's a design tool, so it's 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 a way to uh, trigger better thinking on on the type of outcomes you could get with your business model. Yeah. And then you have different patterns that are called shift pattern, where you have an existing business model in an organization that you are in your exploitation portfolio now in your exploit portfolio, and this business model is declining, and then you could you can use patterns. To get it from something to something else, uh, you can use patterns to improve your business model and put it back in in a in a grow on the on a growing curve. Um, so, if we look at uh, the other interesting aspects of using business model patterns, and I'll try not to get too conceptual here, but one thing that is is really important for us is that. Very often, people equate innovation with the product or the service. So in all terms, they are in the middle box here are called the value proposition. Mm. But what we try to show with patterns is that you can have innovation happening in any area of your business model canvas. You can innovate yeah. by having, you know, around key resources or key activities or around partners that you bring on board or around the channels or the the type of relationship that you, you, you create with your customers. So we have all those different patterns that we you know, call with those fancy names, resource castles, activity differentiators, scalers, et cetera, revenue differentiators, cost differentiators, margin masters. And then in the front stage, yeah, market explorers, channel kings, gravity creators. So we're trying to give people some formulas that they can get inspired from to to design a better business model. Um, the thing that I love about this, and I remember this was a big aha moment personally in the boot camp as well, when you sort of started to show the different connections and some of the examples of how companies do it. And I suppose some of the reality might even be some of those companies didn't even realise that they were doing this, you know, yeah. in where they were successful and some others have been really deliberate yeah. or may have shifted and adjusted things to make that happen. But yeah. the nicest thing about it is that 
you know, where even if someone's an entrepreneur or, you know, so we would definitely see sometimes in innovation, once something works, everyone keeps on trying to copy that thing. Yeah. You know, this is something we as an organisation did and this worked without yeah. really understanding that yeah. quite a few forces were probably at play yeah. in these sorts of patterns that were going on. Yeah. So yeah. one, it's like letting people kind of see yeah. behind the curtain around yeah. what actually were the building blocks yeah. and then truly with this being yeah. able to replicate it. Yeah. That, well, yeah. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and the example that comes to mind when you, when you speak is about this one here called Channel King. So yeah. your channels are here. It's how your value proposition gets delivered to your customers or how your customers are aware of your, of your value proposition. And in those channel kings, we talk about companies like um, um, Dollar Shave Club, you know, uh, razors for men, uh, usually sold in, in retailers. That's how it's always been done. Then, you know, Dollar Shave Club comes, they sell direct to customers with, with their, uh, with their uh, value proposition and they're very successful. And then some suddenly everyone wants to do the same thing. Oh, let's go direct to the customer. But, you know, when we, when we look at the pattern, then we can say, oh, be careful, because if you go direct to the customers, you know, they, they need to know you exist. So there are some activities you need to do around, around marketing, around communication, etc., so that they know you exist. Like in the case of Dollar Shave Club, this was only possible because they had, they managed to have this communication that went viral, you know, YouTube videos that were seen millions and millions of times. So they managed to get their name out in the market. You know, yeah. if, you, if you don't have those activities here, um, then you can try and go direct, but you'll never access any customers. So, you know, working at the level of the pattern, you can say, okay, he, for something to happen here, you also need to have something happening here. And maybe you didn't realize, but there's, there's a need for marketing activities to be radically different from what you do today. Here. Hmm. It's kind of one of the, I felt at the time as well, it is not the only reason, but it is one of the reasons that innovation in the enterprise does get so complicated because you have so many different departments operating with their own individual strategies to yeah. pull some of this stuff off you need yeah. things working symbiotically you know yeah. it's that what the marketing team could be really revolutionary and really innovative and then running off with you know different concepts again that they've been inspired by yeah. Yeah. but as you said without you know, something else to back it up or without, you know, using this strategy on the right channel yeah. in the right circumstances it may fail and yeah. you may not know why, and it gets blamed on something else. So yeah. it's sort of a, it's almost like giving people a kind of a paint by numbers rather than just getting people to copy the painting. And even just as, yeah. a, you know, helping them think clearly, like what is that choreography of thought? What needs to happen first for this to happen? And yeah, Absolutely. something quite cool that makes it a lot more achievable, I think. Absolutely, yeah. And, and if I go to the next one, Fiona, where we talk about uh, shifts and the, and the reason why we also created those shift patterns is, you know, this, this idea that, you know, business models expire like yogurt in, in your fridge. Mm -hmm. And there are some, some examples here. And, and this idea that when you start to see the signs, you can work on improving your existing business model uh, by using some of those shift patterns as well. Some of the... 
So it works like, yeah, you have your original business model, you apply the pattern and you create something on top. And that, that creates an interesting dynamic because of course your existing business model is still active. You still have customers to serve and, and, and products to deliver or services to deliver, et cetera. Yeah. But some of those shift patterns, um, you know, they, from product to service, that's probably the one we, we see the most. Uh, I think um, when we ask the questions, you know, what, what shifts uh, are front of mind for you or what shift could you think of? That's probably number one that comes. Uh, but there are other ones like from low tech to high tech, from, yeah. you know, selling to creating a platform uh, business, um, front stage, you know, from how do you go from a niche, a niche product to a mass market uh, product or service, B2B to B2B to C, low touch to high touch. There, that's a little bit counterintuitive, but we see, we, we see that as well. Yeah. Backstage driven from dedicated usage to multi-usage of a key resource, mm. uh, from asset heavy to asset light, from close to open innovation. And, um, you know, in the, in, the, in the revenue profit formula, driven shift from high cost to low cost, transactional to recurring revenue, and conventional to contrarian. This one is a little bit obscure, but it's this idea that, you know, to um, increase um, quality or perceived quality by the customer, you need to increase cost. Mm -hmm. But there are actually companies that manage to reduce cost and increase the perceived quality yeah. uh, from, from the customer. So that's why we call them contrarian because it goes opposite to the, to the conventional um, thinking. And some of those shifts can go both ways as well. You know, like, um, uh, like for instance, Amazon uh, as a platform business, mm, you know, going yeah. towards selling yeah, stuff, mm. yeah, having a sales business as well. Uh, some of those ships can can go both ways. Yeah. What is a great a company? A great example is Nestle and the pods. The sorts of something you could explain through the shifts, or what's one that you could kind of talk to us about that people might yeah, recognize. So, um, there are a few that are, you know, very um, in, inspiring. I, I found um, there is one. Um, that we we talk about in the book uh maybe if we if we use the main ones like from from product to service this company called uh, uh Hilti that sells tools and that at the beginning of the year 2000s real you know working with building companies and um realized that you know that some of their customers they didn't want to buy tools they just wanted to use tools and always have tools that are available that are at the right place and that are working and and they started you know working on 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 a solution that would be more like fleet management for tools mm. and it took them some time um and they had the support and the drive from one of their main customers but in parallel to their existing you know selling tools business model they created this uh fleet management um offer and and what i found really really um Interesting in this case is that a couple of, you know, a few years later, the global financial crisis uh, happened, like 2008. Mm. And what, what the CEO of the company uh, that, that we interviewed for the book, Dr. Christopher Luce, what he said is that basically when the GFC happened, uh, everyone stopped buying tools. Everyone stopped yeah. purchasing tools. So 
you know, because I mean, think about it. If you're building companies, you're gonna you you have less business, and with the business that you have, you can use your old tools. It's yeah. not the moment where you're gonna buy new tools. But he said because they had started shifting towards a service business model, that's how they could survive and 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 be resilient to the shock of the uh, of the global financial crisis. So some of those shifts uh, they they are. Uh, for organizations, you know, they make the difference between, uh, you know, striving and, and obsolescence, basically. Mm. Well, yeah, super important now as well for with some companies that are still in the midst of a lot of that, and, you know, more to come both here and in Europe as well. We've probably just had the first wave. So these yeah. sorts of trying to preempt how do you make your business more resilient yeah. through the times that are going to come. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to, um, I'm really interested actually in your thoughts, you know, as somebody who is driving innovation strategies in organisations, I think, you know, as corporate innovators in the work that we do and what we're trying to do often, you know, when we're thinking about we want to create something new, how do we serve the needs of end users, you know, um, the customer obviously, the internal stakeholders or... Yeah you know, at some unknown market at large. But what we maybe don't ask ourselves in every case is how will this thing, technology, innovation, whatever we're creating, actually impact society at large? And that's yeah. something that, you know, as a growing movement, we're seeing it in more organisations. I'm interested in your take on that, even as an individual and from a company perspective, however you want to take it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Um... That, that's also a discussion that we let me just um, stop sharing that um, yeah. that's also a discussion that we have with um, that we can have with the, the three types of innovation you know mm. when uh, when um, um, when you work on efficiency innovation maybe you're working on some cost savings maybe you're working on something that's going to create more revenues more profits uh, in, in, in an organization that is that might be traditional and, and focusing primarily on, on, on delivering shareholder value. So that's, that's, you know, when you work on innovation in this context, mm -hmm. that's what you're contributing to. Um, then you have um, the situation where you're working in, in sustaining innovation. So you have all the energy that comes from creating new products new services, et cetera. You have this startup feel and, and, and people feel energized about that. And even inside organizations, especially people who have been on the exploit side, when they get on those kind of projects, they are very, uh, it can be quite energizing. Mm -hmm. But then if you take, you know, a couple of steps back, sometimes the impact is pretty limited. I mean, uh, one of the examples I, I use a lot and, uh, is, you know, the strawberry flavored Kit Kats. Mm -hmm. and, and the strawberry flavored Kit I mean, it's a real example. I mean, that's innovation, that's product innovation. Is, you know, having a strawberry-flavored Kit Kat going to change the world? Mm. Probably not. It's probably not even going to change the world for Nestle. Uh, it's probably a very small impact for them. So uh, in, in those kind of circumstances, uh, if I reflect back on, um, you know, the impact on the individual, the impact on the organization, and the impact on society, so when you are on efficiency, I, I feel very often... The impact is limited everywhere. People don't get excited about cost cutting or you know improving the process by 0.5%. Yeah. When you go to product innovation, 
very often you can create something that has a meaning at the personal level, but for the company or for the society as a whole, maybe the impact's not that great. Mm. When you're going towards transformative um, innovation, then that's where, you know, from, from a personal perspective, uh, the stakes are high, it's highly energizing, etc. Uh, from the company's perspective, it's also very, the stakes are also high. So you're working on something that could have a huge impact for the company. And in think about the example of, of Hilti that we talked about, mm. I'll think about um, an example we use a lot as well, uh, AWS within Amazon. I mean, when they yeah. created that, this is something that's substantial. That's not, mm. that's not something small on the side. That's not a strawberry flavored Kit Kat. That's, yeah. that's another business that's, uh, significant. Mm. Uh, then there is the third dimension, the societal impact, and then that's that's a case by case, you know. And I feel some some in some contexts uh, you're gonna get you know the personal impact, the company impact, but the the leaders in the company just don't think about you know what is it that they contribute to society as a whole. It's just, it just feels like they're beyond the boundaries of what they can, they can impact. And other leaders, um, and, and those are the leaders that, you know, who inspire me the most, that's how they think. Mm. Um, you know, I remember um, 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 two years ago, I went to the Drucker Forum um, and uh, there was one panel where you had Paul Pullman, you know, it was actually one of his last days as the CEO of Unilever. He was, mm -hmm. And then you had other CEOs on the panel. And then you had one who was talking about the world and other who were talking about their companies. And this was really striking, you know, to, mm -hmm. to see a leader that uses their leadership position to have an impact on their company for sure, but on society as a whole. And I think that's where that's where you know innovation can get uh, really exciting when you can contribute to uh, to those three things like uh, mm. you're aligned with your personal values, you're creating value for your organization, and you feel like you're having making an impact on 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 the world and society as a whole as well. Yes. And I feel more like that's that not and more. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. No, I agree. I think it's I think there's more to come there. And it's going to be interesting to see whether it is this kind of push or pull, you know, whether it is these, you know, this the sorts of leaders that are have that kind of foresight to be able to come up and genuinely a social conscious conscience yeah. to want to do it. You yeah. know, not not in that I'm just responding because I think it's sexy and we yeah. want to be the next Patagonia or you know, those yeah. sorts of examples, mm -hmm. but true. Yeah. You know, someone who truly believes in conscious capitalism, which is a concept, you know, that's yeah. been around for a very long time. Yeah. But how do you bring that into what you do as a business? Yeah. What I think will be interesting to see is, you know, definitely we see leaders here in Australia doing that and talking yeah. about being purpose-led and leading with that mission and really clearly yeah. communicating and articulating it. How do you make that link then to the way yeah. that they innovate? Because we've, we're still playing catch-up yeah. in a lot of ways here in Australia. Yeah, I believe to sort of some of what we're seeing internationally, definitely in organisations. So, you know, and which probably comes from a lot of what you talk about. You know, if it's if it's yeah. if a lead, if a CEO yeah. is the driver of innovation, yeah. you know, or your chief entrepreneur, as you talk about it side by side with them, if yeah. they are the ones that are driving it, that will happen organically. It won't. You won't need a conscious innovation team as such. 
to be able to do that. Um, so that's probably mm. what will happen first and we'll, we'll need a few front runners to yeah. demo that. But, yeah, yeah. I, w- I would love to see more of that. I completely yeah. agree with you. And, and sometimes, I mean, I think what it, what's interesting in our work is that we, we can we can sometimes create the conditions for more, more of that. Mm. It's not always possible. I mean, I, I do work one-on-one with, with leaders as well. And um, uh, earlier this week I was talking about those topics with um, – um, with a CFO of a, a large um, company that's in meat um, in, in, in France. And, you know, they, he feels stuck. He feels stuck between consumer behaviors that are changing uh, uh, and, and also retailers that are putting immense pressure on, on those types of companies. And in like, we're, I'm stuck in the middle uh, I'm trying to get this company, is the CFO, I'm trying to get the, this company to survive. I cannot solve the environmental crisis. I mean, I just can't in the mm. 24 hours that I have every day. Yeah. So sometimes some of those, some of those leaders are also um, under immense pressure. Um, so, but yeah, as, as often as we can also introduce um, a little bit of a conscience in, in mm. more conscious or more, awareness of the impact of what we do when, even when we're working on those innovation topics yeah. the more we can do that the better I feel. yeah that's an interesting point as well isn't it that there and I can completely understand it's all it's easier said than done that leaders should be doing that it's an interesting question to that sort of leader thinking I need to keep things afloat it's even is there a new market you could potentially capture you know that conscious market maybe with something but that's probably yeah. a bigger combo Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. Uh, so what I'd love to do with the time that, that we have left anyway, there's, um, can you tell anyone who is out there listening, just, I mean, we know that the book is out. I'd highly recommend people get on it, get it on your Kindle. It's in all good bookstores. <laughs> Order it from Amazon. We've mentioned a few times. How else can people get in touch with you, Fred? Um, yeah, they can they can um, reach out by uh, by um, email or um, go on my website frederiquetian.com or my LinkedIn frederiquetian as well or email frederic at strategizer.com. Um, that's probably those are the, the easiest way to get in touch. Yeah, perfect. And we'll let you know if we have any follow up questions. Thank you so much for such a generous. Um, conversation today it's been really good to talk about this I've even picked up a few new things that um, I hadn't before as well so it's just been so good to share this and yeah really wishing you the best of luck and the team with the book it's fabulous and um, yeah looking forward to talking to you soon thanks Fiona thanks for having (laughs) me thanks so much bye Bye bye